You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello and welcome back to Nitty Gritty Nursing. In this episode, I'm going to try to break down disseminated intravascular coagulation, which was a request that someone reached out uh, to me. Again, if you have uh, topics or ideas that you would like for me to try to cover, I'm happy to to take a stab at it. Uh, Feel free to reach out to nittygrittynursing at gmail.com. It's also listed in the podcast description. But with that, let's just get into disseminated intravascular coagulation. This is basically a process where the hemostasis in your body runs completely out of control. And what that means is that normally when we cut ourselves and we have a little bit of blood that's coming out of ourselves, the hemostatic process in your body sends a clot on that vessel wall to help it vasoconstrict. And then the platelets arrive and they form a wall to for, for the plug and it stops the bleeding and that results in primary hemostasis. And then the coagulation cascade is activated and your body takes care of itself naturally. And it's a very smart system. In the event of someone who gets disseminated intravascular coagulation, what this is, is it's a consumption coagulopathy. And what that means is both your hemostasis, so the clots that are forming to stop potential bleeding inside your body, goes out of control. And in addition to that, because it's a consumption coagulopathy and we are consuming all of those key elements that help to form clots... If you've used up all of your clotting material inside of your body, you then don't have any more. And so because then you don't have any more, we have too little clotting and then people will start to bleed. And this is why DIC specifically is very confusing because when hemostasis runs out of control, our bodies form a ton of clots everywhere and those for no reason, right? For no reason. When you look at some of the literature, what they basically say is that the reason why the clots are forming is because there's been some exposure in the system to tissue factor, which then activates the coagulation series of seven, you know, clotting factor seven, and it starts this whole process. And normally that's a protected series in your body. But in this event, when we have DIC, what we end up seeing is that that normal hemostasis that we would have that ensures that the formation of clots at the at the site of a vessel injury and then that is then repaired is damaged some way somehow and there's multiple reasons why people succumb to this or obtain DIC and the body being as smart as it is right it has multiple feedbacks that are built in to prevent that activation in the absence of an injury right because if we don't need to activate that that process we shouldn't unless we have an injury. And in DIC, that is not the case. The activation occurs regardless of whether or not there is an injury. And so when you think about that, right, and you've got all of these clots forming, well, if all of these clots are forming, they're traveling everywhere in the body. That means that these people are then going to have various potential organ ischemia because as those clots fly through the vessels and then lodge themselves into tiny, tiny vessels in different organs, whether that's the liver or the spleen, or the pancreas, anywhere where there's a blood vessel, which is everywhere in your body, even your intestines, we are now going to prevent, you know, arterial blood flow from getting to the end destination and doing a waste exchange to pick up waste product to then return it to the lungs. So you have way too many clots that form. 
Okay. It then blocks vessels and it causes organ ischemia. Well, organ ischemia in and of itself by nature is a very painful process. If your organs are starved for oxygen, it will result in ischemia, which is a, ve- which is pain. It ends up being pain because your cells start to die. Now, because we're using up all of those clotting factors, on top of that, then there's not enough clotting factors for when we do start to get hit with things and then we start to bleed. So once you've used up all of those clotting factors, now you can no longer bleed because you no longer have the reserves or the stores of all of those clotting components that we need to prevent bleeding from occurring when, for example, say a vessel injury takes place. Okay. There's really, in my opinion, and I'm sure if you read the literature, you would find something different, but there's five big reasons why a patient might obtain disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. And those five big reasons, the first one is sepsis. And from what I've read, sepsis is the most common cause behind the activation of this process and people that will obtain it. Now, when I was in nursing school, DIC was solely associated with pregnancy. And for good reason, honestly, because when we think about pregnancy, right, there's a few big reasons why pregnant patients who may might have an underlying condition are pre or at risk for the development of this. And the three big ones are going to be like placental abruption, some sort of amniotic fluid embolism, or fetal demise with necrosis. Okay, because those conditions result in the generation of, so we, the body will start to make it or will be exposed to the tissue factor and tissue factor interacts with the circulating factor seven to rapidly initiate that clotting cascade, irregardless of whether or not we have some sort of vessel injury that requires that. And when you look at like the data and the statistics on that in pregnancy isolated, right? 37% of all pregnant individuals who get disseminated intravascular coagulation, um, 37%, they had placental abruption. Okay. There's 29% of uh, pregnant individuals that will get it uh, when they have had postpartum hemorrhage. And then you've got 14% who will get it if they've had preeclampsia, eclampsia, or HELP syndrome. And HELP syndrome is that hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelet count. And then, you know, the amniotic fluid embolism I talked about, if if a pregnant person experiences that, 6% of them will end up with disseminated intravascular coagulation. And then you've got pregnancy-related sepsis, which will account for another 6%. And again, sepsis. Sepsis is the number one reason in what I've read through that will lead to the development of disseminated intravascular coagulation. We're going to see how many times I can say it, or I'll just start saying DIC. And a point of clarification that those percentages that I gave of pregnant individuals who obtain DIC, those are the percentages of the reasons or the underlying causes behind why they might have gotten DIC. It's not to say that, you know, 37% of all pregnant people will get, you know, DIC if they've had placental previa, but of like, you know, if we're talking about 10 pregnant individuals in one hospital that had DIC, likelihood of 37% of them being from placental abruption. So hopefully that's not too terribly confusing. The other reasons, so you've got sepsis and you've got pregnancy, or or I should say obstetric complications, pregnancy complications. The other reasons why people might might get DIC is from some sort of cancer or trauma, or they just have an intravascular hemolysis that occurs, Okay. Now, when these patients, right, if you understand the very basic, because I'm not going to go into 
the detailed depths of the pathogenesis of DIC and how it affects it. If you are interested in that, UpToDate has great resources. I'm sure your textbooks have great resources. But the general idea is that when someone sustains or obtains disseminated intravascular coagulation, what you need to understand is they have some sort of underlying condition. Is it sepsis? Is it a pregnancy complication? It does figure out what that underlying condition is because what that is doing is it's activating, right? The intravascular coagulation series to occur. And when it does that, we start to build up clots. Well, if we're building up clots, we are using up all of our clotting material. So then we don't have any clotting material. And those clots then go to, um, they become thrombuses that are floating around the body, lodging themselves in all the different organs. And we end up with organ ischemia. And because we don't have any clotting material, we have now impaired coagulation and these people will start to bleed. Now, how do these people look? What do they sort of present as? And here is kind of where we talk in a very basic sense about um, pie, right? So the presentation of these patients when they are suffering from DIC, if you think about just the basic pathophysiology that we just talked about, they are going to have bruising, which appears very easily. Again, because if they have burned through all of their clotting components. They don't have any more. They just have a bunch of floating clots in their body. So now when you bump them or when they smack their hand or whatever it might be, they're going to start bleeding or bruising. They're going to have bleeding at sites of like the wound, any wounds that they had. So if you've poked them a bunch with a needle to try to get lab results, they might start bleeding from those pokes. Their gums will start bleeding. They'll have nosebleeds. Um, they might have um, blood just in their mouth because the head is is a highly vascularized area. They might also have blood in their stool and their urine. So you have to be, from a nursing perspective, right, is one of those interventions. Not only do you need to be monitoring what their skin is doing, but you're also looking at everything coming out of them. Look in their mouth, look at their blood, look at their urine. And because they have all of those clots flying everywhere, whether they're small, whether they're large, it doesn't matter. But when we think about clots in the body, right, you have to think about organ ischemia. And not only organ ischemia, but where else are those clots going to go? Pick an organ. And if a clot is there, guess what? That's a problem. So if a clot ends up in their heart, in the vasculature that's feeding their heart, they're probably going to have chest pain. If it ends up in their lungs, they're probably going to have some trouble breathing or shortness of breath because now we've got pulmonary embolisms, right? If it ends up in their brain, they're going to be confused and they might have speech changes. You want to know why? because they're probably having a stroke. And as a result of all of this, right, they will have clots that are then deposited in their skin in in that um, small vascular area. And so they might, or they're going to have, you know, petechiae purpura, they're going to have oozing blood at any sites. They will easily develop hematomas. From a respiratory standpoint, they're going to be tacky to kipnic, sorry, to kipnic. From a cardiovascular standpoint, they'll also be tacky, tachycardic. But from a respiratory standpoint, they will be tachypnic and they're going to have a fast respiratory rate. And it's not necessarily because of a blood volume issue, right? And them trying to perfuse adequately in that sense, but because of all those clots that are flying around. And when they cough, they might have hemoptysis or blood in their sputum. Cardiovascularly, again, they're going to become tachycardic. They will become hypotensive. Right? Especially if we've got clots in the heart. Well, clots in the heart make the heart not pump adequately. And now you're going to have a potential reduction in cardiac output. Not only that, but if you think about like the vessel injuries that are occurring in the vasculature, right? They're not going to be able to vasoconstrict adequately. 
from a GI perspective, you just go through the systems from a GI perspective, this patient's going to present with potential for upper or lower GI bleeding. Again, they might also have belly pain from a clot that has lodged itself in some sort of vessel that is feeding the intestines. And if that happens, they're going to have pain because now those intestines are starting to die because they're not being adequately perfused. But on top of that, they also have no clotting factor because they've used it all up. It's a consumption coagulopathy. And because they don't have any of that, they're also likely to have some sort of GI bleeding, bloody stools. Again, look at their urine. Do they have hematuria? And neurologically, if we think about that in a broad sense, if you've got clots that are flying to your brain or into the blood vessels in your brain or your eyes, you're going to have vision changes. You might be dizzy. You'll have changes in level of consciousness. You might have a headache. So from a signs and symptom perspective, when you think about DIC, the big ones that you're going to want to watch for are, of course, anything that are have to do with cardiac output, respiratory neuro, and then in addition, just by the premise of what DIC is all about, where you have massive loads of clots flying around the body, you're likely to have like the deposits in the skin. And usually their 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 skin is, it looks very bruised, or they're going to have those tiny like petechial or papyrus dots everywhere. And then they're going to be bleeding. So you have to look for where they might be bleeding because you have to address it. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. That's how they present. So what do we do from an intervention standpoint? Here's your eye of the pie. Okay. Yeah, you have to find the underlying cause and treat it. So you have to figure it out. So if you are a nurse or a nursing student who is destined to work in um, the ICU, there's a lot of septic patients in the ICU. And so you should always, in the back of your brain, have this idea of like, man, depending on how bad their sepsis is, that might be the reason why they develop disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. Or maybe you're working in a trauma ICU. If you're working in a trauma ICU, again, trauma is one of those precursors to stimulate this overactive clotting process. If you're working in labor and delivery, it could be any one of those obstetric complications. But the the, the intervention is that you have to first and foremost identify the cause to be able to treat it and intervene. And because we know, right, that there is, um, because we know that it's a consumption coagulopathy, so we're using up all of our clotting factors, logic would serve that one of the things we're going to do in terms of treatment, right, is we are going to be looking for and we need to replace all of those those clotting elements, whether that's we're going to give them platelets, fresh frozen plasma, we might give them coagulation factors, we're going to try to replace their fibrinogen, and we're going to support their organs because we already know that they're suffering from end organ ischemia or organ ischemia because of all the clots flying around. Now, 
we have just treated their lack of clotting elements, right? Replaced platelets, fibrinogen, clotting factors. But there's this other caveat where they have clots flying around their body. So we also have to give them some sort of blood thinner like heparin in order <laughs> to sort of stop those clots from forming or to start to help break them down so that we can get adequate perfusion to where potential organs are having uh, microvascular thrombuses being deposited. Okay, so that is that is those are the two kind of things that we're going to see that we need to treat. A, we have to replace their clotting factors because now they're overtly bleeding because they don't have any clotting factors, but they're overtly bleeding because they've used all of their clotting factors to create micro clots everywhere in their body. So while we are replacing all of those clotting factors to try to stop that bleeding, we also have to give a blood thinner to stop those clots that are everywhere from causing more damage. And it's that's a paradoxical concept, right? Because why would you give someone a blood thinner if they're already bleeding? And this is why, because when you look at the, well, first of all, treat the underlying cause. If you're in labor and delivery and someone has placental abruption or some sort of fetal demise, you have to address the root issue. If someone has sepsis, address the root issue, right? So this is just one aspect of it. If someone has sepsis, they should be getting antibiotics after you've gotten by two sets of blood cultures, right? You should be looking for where is that source of the infection? Is it systemic or is it from a central venous catheter that was placed that has become infected? So treat the underlying cause and then specifically as it relates to disseminated intravascular coagulation, you then have to replace all of those clotting factors, support the organs, and organ support might be that we have to put these patients on a ventilator. It might be that we have to then give them additional medications to manage their hemodynamic status. Perhaps they might even need a transfusion. It's all going to be dependent on what is occurring with your patient in front of you. And then once you've replaced all of those clotting factors and you're supporting those organs, you must give like a blood thinner such as heparin because of all the clots. The other big thing that we will do is we'll do lab work, right? And this makes sense because you honestly need to be looking at what their labs are doing. If you're going to give platelets, you had better know what their platelet levels are. So the big labs that you're going to do, and if you just sit here and think through the basic pathology of what DIC is from a very rudimentary standpoint, we're going to do a CBC because we, we want to see what their platelets are doing, right? And because they've got now this bleeding issue, we want to know what their prothrombin time is and what their partial thromboplastin time is. And so that's PT and PTT. Uh, and we will look at a D-dimer for fibrin uh, degradation product. Okay. So that D-dimer increases, right, as the clots begin to break down and it releases those components of the fibrin that were created on top of the clots. And so we look at that. So when you're doing those labs, right, and we do a CBC, we should see that their platelets are really low because we've burned through them all. They've been used up in creating of the of the thrombi that's circulating through the body. And we're going to see decreased fibrinogen as well. Now, from a PT and PTT standpoint, and this is where students get often frequently, um, uh, you know, they get confused about this, right? Because they always say, oh, well, the PT and the PTT should be down because they're bleeding. No, think about what it is. Prothrombin time is a measurement of how fast someone is clotting. So you're actually going to have a prolonged PT and a prolonged PTT because they don't have any clotting factor. So if you take a drop of blood and you put it on a piece of 
um, uh, some sort of slide, like a slide that you'd put underneath a microscope, and you're evaluating their prothrombin time or their partial thromboplast in time, we're evaluating how fast they're going to clot. And you sit there and you can you can take a toothpick, you can swirl it around until we get into a clot, right? You should, it will, in these, in these patients, right, they don't have any clotting factors, so they're not going to clot. So it's going to take them a really long time, if they do have any, to just try to do a basic clot. So you see increased prothrombin time, increased partial thromboplast in time. And so when you think about this from like a big uh, sort of perspective, right, it's this seesaw action, right? So disseminated intravascular coagulation, there is a beautiful like homeostatic balance between our body's ability to form clots and to break clots down. And there's a lot of pathways and safety mechanisms put into place so that this like teeter-totter action is never out of whack. In the case of DIC, it becomes out of whack and we form clots, which means we are we are spreading clots everywhere and those clots get lodged into vessels. We end up with end organ ischemia. And because we are forming clots everywhere, we are depleting their clotting factors. So now any little vessel injury that we sustain, they will just continue to bleed over and over and over and over and over. And they won't stop because they don't have any clotting factor. So when we think about, when you go to evaluate, and that's the E, evaluate and educate, these patients are in critical care status. So unless they're extubated and you can have a chat with them, there's, you can educate them on what's happening. But honestly, like this is more of an evaluation of whether or not what we are doing from a nursing perspective is working. And we talked about how they sort of present with their signs and symptoms. And then we talked about the interventions where you have to figure out what the underlying cause is and then treat it. And then you are addressing both aspects of DIC. You are giving clotting factors and you are giving blood thinners to support, ultimately, right, to support and their organ status. Nursing management, we have to be vigilant in terms of the assessments that we're doing. And that is going to circulate around, like, what is their respiratory status? Reflect back to every organ I just sort of broke down very, very quickly and what the, what the signs and symptoms they will have as a resultant of that. So you treat that underlying cause and then you look at it from an airway standpoint or respiratory standpoint. They might require oxygen. They might require intubation with mechanical ventilation, right? They might require fluid volume replacement because now they're bleeding out in, internally, right? And that's where you get all of the different skin changes. Um, they get heparin during that thrombotic stage. So when all of those clots are flying through them, we give that heparin. We will then give fresh frozen plasma during the lysis stage when those clots start to break down. They might need a red blood cell and a platelet transfusion. And because all of those clots are depositing themselves everywhere from the brain down to your pinky toes, right? This also includes your kidneys. And what we know is that when the kidneys, the kidneys are very sensitive little organs because they're responsible for, a lot, for all of your fluid volume, well, for the majority of your fluid volume adjustments. And when you have these tiny clots that end up inside of your, your kidneys, we call them renal emboli, that can then, that can result, you can get an acute kidney injury from renal emboli causing organ damage or organ ischemia, or there's a fluid volume issue. And if we have a fluid volume issue because oh, we've got all these clots circulating around and maybe they accidentally bump their flank and now they've got a kidney injury or they've got some sort of bleeding that's occurring and they're losing fluid volume status, 
if they have low fluid volume and they are hypotensive, right, when we're doing their vital signs as part of our nursing, like, umbrella of things that we do on every single patient, right, if that's the case, then they've, they're going to get a pre-renal injury. They're going to get a pre-renal injury. We don't have enough fluid volume to adequately perfuse the kidneys. Oh, yeah, and by the way, maybe they've got clots inside their kidneys. So these patients also will often be considered for hemodialysis, in their acute stage because they need to have still all of the waste products and the fluid adjustments made. So there's a lot of different kind of aspects of disseminated intravascular coagulation in adults in the acute care setting. There's a lot of reasons why people get it. Sepsis is the most common. We see it in pregnancy. We see it in trauma. We see it in individuals with cancer. And it all has to do with the the delicate like balance of creating clots, breaking down clots that your bodies do in a very, very easy way, right? It manages it man your body manages this complex system very easily. But it all has to do with that going out of whack. And suddenly, and oftentimes, well, I shouldn't say often, but from what I've read, when that tissue factor gets activated and then it works in conjunction with the clotting seven factor, factor seven, it starts this whole cascade and it can be for any number of reasons. And I'm sure if you, you went and you investigated just sepsis alone and sepsis and associated DIC, you would find something different. But this is like the very general and the very nitty gritty basics of this. So you need to support their airways, support their cardiovascular output and status, and then treat the underlying cause. This is just the basic premise of uh, nitty gritty nursing. And so with that, that's all I've got for disseminated intravascular coagulation in adults. If you have any questions, please let me know. My email is listed in the podcast description. If you like what you've heard, share it with friends. If you're in nursing school, share it with your nursing student friends. Uh, make sure you like it in the app that you are listening to it in. Other than that, go forth and keep on learning.